So back in 2002, I had the privilege. I'm going to, is this going to be okay? Should I dim those? Does that work better? Uh, back in 2002, I had the chance to spend some time in Europe. I had spent the previous school year from September of 2001 to, to May of 2002 in Europe. And at the end of my time in Europe, I did a, the whole Eurorail thing. Any of you ever done that before? Oh, man, it's a classic experience. But um, I did the whole Eurorail thing where you get a pass and you can travel around Europe. And one of the places that I went, I will never, ever forget. It, it, it's just etched there indelibly in my mind. And um, I wish that I had appreciated it as much then as I do now. I, I wish I could have just really, you know, I was like 21 years old, not, not even quite. Yeah, I was 21. And... Um, I'll never forget going to this place called Mathausen. Anybody ever heard of that location? It's located in Austria, about, I don't know how far away from Vienna. But when I put a picture up on the screen, you'll probably understand why I appreciated it to some degree. And uh, can you appreciate what that is? It's a concentration camp. And uh, this was one of the first concentration camps that was, that was developed by the Nazis. It actually became literally the last one to be liberated by the Allied forces. And uh, you just walk around that concentration camp and you, you soak in the reality of what took place there. And one of the things that they had, um, there's the guard tower. Oops, my clicker's not working very well. Uh, but one of the things that they had was they had a quarry there that they actually required the prisoners to get granite out of, and they built the camp themselves, these prisoners. And so it's like they're building their own prison. It's quite remarkable. Um, this is the, the, some of the bunk beds that they would sleep in, and they would literally sleep three in a bunk bed. And uh, that's myself on the right, I'm sure you can tell. That's my cousin Jamie in the middle, and that's my dad, uh, there on the other side. But um, you just look there, it's so sobering. And as I said, this is a, down at the bottom is the granite quarry, and, and you can't see it very well, but on the uh, left-hand side is a giant stairway that they would have to, the, the prisoners would have to go down and they'd have to mine that quarry. And they'd have to carry back up all that granite. And this was a camp that was designed specifically to kill people. There were some camps that were concentration camps that were designed just to hold people. This one was actually designed to kill people. They, they, that's what their end goal was. And if, if you didn't labor hard enough, they would take you and put you, I'm sorry to show this to you, but they would put you in one of these. And as you stand there, you're just, you're just the, the mind can't comprehend. The mind cannot comprehend what takes place in those, those places. There were some 300,000 or so that were exterminated at this camp called Mathausen in Austria. I was reading about a year and a half ago a book that shares some reflections on this whole atrocity. Maybe some of you have read Night by Eli Wiesel. Notice what he said. This was one of those books you read in high school. He's, he, he was a prisoner there brought to Auschwitz, the most famous of all the concentration camps, where over one million Jews were exterminated. And he was one of those individuals, and he survived it. But notice what he says in 
this book, Night, a classic book. Eli Wiesel eventually won the, the Nobel Peace Prize. He said, what are you, my God, I thought angrily. He's there in the concentration camp. How do you compare to this stricken mass gathered to affirm to you their faith, their anger, their defiance? What does your grandeur mean, master of the universe, in the face of all this cowardice, this decay, and this misery? Why do you go on troubling these poor people's wounded minds, their ailing bodies? Somebody says, blessed be God's name. Thousands of lips repeated the benediction, bent over like trees in a storm. Blessed be God's name? Why, but why would I bless him? Every fiber in me rebelled because he caused thousands of children to burn in his mass graves because he kept six crematoria working day and night, including Sabbath and the holy days, because in his great might he had created Auschwitz, Birkenau, Buna, and so many other factories of death. How could I say to him, blessed be thou, almighty, master of the universe, who chose us among all nations to be tortured day and night, to watch as our fathers, our mothers, our brothers end up in the furnaces. Praised be thy holy name for having chosen us to be slaughtered on thine altar. I was no longer, check this out, I was no longer able to lament. I was the accuser, God the accused. And so in the Jewish mind, in the face of six million people being exterminated at the hands of the Nazi people, they're putting God on trial. They're they're accusing God of unfaithfulness. They're accusing God of turning his back on his chosen people. And this just is one part, one aspect of thousands of years of history where many of us ask those questions. Why God? How can you claim to be a God of love? How can you claim to be faithful? And yet all of these wretched things happen. You know, as I was reflecting back on this trip and I was looking through my pictures, I thought it was somewhat ironic because you see this picture right here? My cousin Jamie is there in the middle and uh, he's probably about 10 years younger than I am. And I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years after this picture was taken, he was in a horrendous car accident rendering him a paraplegic. To this day, he has to ride around in a wheelchair. He's actually made quite a bit of himself. He, he goes and performs in the Special Olympics. But you think of all of the pain and the misery. You think of all the atrocities. You think of all the hurt and the, and the, and the woe. And we think to ourselves, okay, we are talking about this idea that God is love. But why doesn't it bear out in our experience? This has perhaps been the single most discussed and asked question in the history of the world. If God is supposedly good, why is there so much evil and so much pain? You know, it's not a new question, as I mentioned. People have debated this for years. And in fact, long before World War II, long before the Holocaust, the Jewish people were also asking this question way back in biblical times. You see, if you were to read the scriptures, if you were to read the, what we call the Old Testament, this was a question that they were frequently grappling with. 
Why are we experiencing so much pain? Why are we experiencing so much violence? Is God truly faithful to us? And so this was a question that was on the minds of the biblical writers. When Paul comes along, the Apostle Paul, and he writes his letters to the different churches, this is one of the questions he's grappling with. Is God remaining faithful to his people, or has he turned his back on them? And he has a very, very interesting answer in a book called Romans. He's grappling with this question, and he comes along and he writes this to the Christians who are living in Rome. And what Paul is trying to demonstrate in the book of Romans is that God is actually fair to all. And he has, yes, he has chosen the Jewish people, but he is also seeking to bring others into that family. And that all are alike. But check this out. He asked this question in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. He actually asked the question prior to this. He says, so what advantage is there of being a Jewish person then if both Jews and non-Jews are welcomed into the family? And Paul goes on to say, well, there's one advantage, and that is the Jewish people. It's not recorded up here on the screen just yet. He said the Jewish people were given the revelation of God, and they actually were the, the stewards of God's revelation. And so Paul then goes on to say this. He says, true, some of those Jewish people were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will be unfaithful? This is a very important point that I think you and I have to recognize in our own life. Like, is God's faithfulness towards me dependent upon my faithfulness towards him? Is God going to to stop being faithful to me if I turn my back on him, if I go a different direction, if I say, no, God, I don't want anything to do with you? What does Paul say? He says, of course not. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon your faithfulness. Even if God's chosen people, the Jewish people, turn their back on him, God will remain faithful. Now, of course, that is the very question that we grapple with. As we, are, as we are grappling with this question of, of God's love and as we're, we're unpacking this idea of, of what does the Adventist church teach, we understand that God's faithfulness is never-ending. And, and we know that because we see it most chiefly in the person of Jesus. But check this out. He says, even if everyone else is a liar, even if the whole world is a liar, God is true. And now check this out. This is is an amazing scripture that Paul is about to quote. He says, as the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will, what does the next line say? You will win your case in court. You will win your case in court. So what the scriptures are saying here is that it says as though God is going to court. And he has a court appointment. And there are charges that are being brought against him. And there there are words being expressed against him. And people are debating, is God guilty? Is he innocent? Is he faithful? Is he unfaithful? And Paul stands up and he says unequivocally, yes, God, you will be proven faithful. You will be proven right when you have your day in court. It's an interesting idea. And if you were to step back and look at the big picture of Scripture, what you would recognize is that there seems to be this this case that's going on that involves more than just you and me. 
There seems to be this story, this, this grand meta-narrative that is going on where, where God has been accused of not being who he supposedly is. One author who has just written a book, and it's going to be a little technical, okay? You guys handle some technical jargon? Is that okay? We'll just do it briefly. I know you try to take a day off of the, the, the deep thinking, but my dad used to say when he would preach, when you come to church, don't leave your brain in the parking lot, okay? All right? So check this out. This is a, an author who is a friend of mine who teaches at our Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, and he has just written this book that has been published by a academic press. And it's, it's a very, very interesting book. I would recommend it to you if you want a little heavy reading. Okay, it's called Theodicy of Love. And in this book, he says, God's love is at the center of a cosmic dispute. Well, that's an interesting idea. God's love is at the center of a cosmic dispute. In other words, there's an argument over it. There is a discussion. There is a debate. Okay, is God really who he says he is? Is God really love? In the face of all of this evil, in the face of all this pain, is God really love? Now check out what he goes on to say. Cosmic allegations. When he says cosmic, what he means is there are allegations that have been leveled by extra human individuals, okay? In other words, people who are not necessarily human beings. We, no doubt, have those questions as well. But these were first introduced by supernatural powers. He says, cosmic allegations have been raised before the heavenly council claiming that God is not wholly good, loving, or just. This is a largely, now here's a $10 word, okay? This is largely an epistemic conflict. What does that mean? Epistemic merely has to do with the idea of knowledge. This is, a, this is a debate over how we know what we know and how we know that God is good. And so this is largely an epistemic conflict which cannot be won by the mere exercise of power but is met by an extended demonstration of what? Character in a cosmic courtroom drama. So if, if, if you were to stand up and say, you know what? You are the most controlling, manipulative, mean individual I've ever seen. And if I were to come over here and I say, okay, we'll take care of that problem. I'll just take you out, right? I am not mean and unloving, right? And I were to like pull out something and take you out, that wouldn't solve the problem, right? There would be only one way that I could argue against that claim and that only way would be to demonstrate it, right? The only way I could do that would be to demonstrate it. And so God, in order to meet these claims, because Scripture is clear, and we won't go through all of, the, all of the evidence, but Scripture is clear that charges have been brought against God by the great accuser. That's, that's what Scripture calls him, Satan. The great accuser has brought charges against God, and the only way that God can meet those claims is by demonstration. Now you say to yourself, well, pastor, how does all this work? How does all this work when we've had these claims against God of being unfaithful to his people, of allowing six million Jews to be cremated in the in the crematorium there in, in Auschwitz and other places. How, can, how does that jive? And all I'm proposing to you this morning is that over the course of history, 
God has been seeking to demonstrate his faithfulness. And we see it most acutely on the cross of Jesus Christ, where Jesus demonstrates most fully who God really is. And he says, you want to know what God is like. Look to the cross and see that my son has demonstrated my faithfulness. And there will come a day when God is fully vindicated before the whole universe and everybody says, oh, that is true. God is who he says he is. But it has to go through chapter after chapter after chapter until the book of Revelation comes along and says, then I looked. This is, this is envisioning a time down towards the end of time. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was what? Who was slain. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now check this out. And Every creature, how many creatures? Every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea. He's using, he's using a, an, an analogy here. And all that are in them. So every single person at, some, at a point in the future will bow down. And I heard them saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, into the Lamb, forever and ever and ever. Amen. So what Scripture teaches, and I don't have every little answer at this point for you, I don't know that I ever will, but what Scripture teaches is that there is this unfolding drama, this unfolding court case that is being played out, where at the end, a verdict will be rendered, and everybody in the universe will say, yep, God, you are who you said you were. You are faithful. You are love. You are a God of mercy and grace and justice. You are a God who stands up for those who are weak. I don't know that I could see it. We can't see it right now. I can't understand all the ways of God right now. But at the end, God will fully have demonstrated his faithfulness, his love, and love will win at the end. Now, does that mean, does that mean, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, Does that mean that every single person, even as acknowledging that God is gracious and loving, does that mean that every single person will want to live forever in a relationship with him? That's not what scripture teaches. All could, but not all will. Even, and we can unpack this later on, but even as we acknowledge, all acknowledge that he is who he says he is, there will be many who still say, but I don't want anything to do with you. I don't want to have my life aligned with yours. And they will turn their back on him, even in light of all the evidence. You know, about a year and a half ago, one of my friends um, here in Bangor, he told me about a movie that he went and saw a couple times. He said, I love the movie so much, and I just sobbed when I watched it. And I've mentioned it here a few times, I think. But uh, I had the privilege of watching it when I flew to Australia, uh, September of 2017. And I just cried, man. I just cried so very much. Have any of you read or seen The Shack? This is a powerful, powerful story. And what takes place in the story is very much what we've talked about here. And that is 
there's a, a man whose daughter is violently taken and abducted, and he's so angry at God and saying, God, what happened, and who are, how could I trust you? And ultimately, he's invited out to the shack where his daughter had been found not alive anymore, and he's invited into a conversation with God. And I won't spoil it for you, but God shows up in a very strange way. But this whole time, he is, he is wrestling with God, how could I trust you? How could I believe in you? How can I remain faithful to you? You've turned your back on me, and how could you let this poor little five-year-old girl, Missy, his daughter, the pride of his life, how could you let her, let this happen to her? There's one point where the movie comes to a climax, the book comes to a climax. I both read it and watched it. And this woman who personifies wisdom invites the main character, Mac, into this throne room. And she says, Mac, you sit on the throne. It's time for judgment. He said, no, 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 no. You're going to judge me? And she says, no, no, no. You're the one doing the judging. It's time for you to judge God. And and, and as the, the scenes unfold, he understands that God ultimately is faithful. And God ultimately is love. And God gave of himself. He gave of himself in his son, demonstrating that he is who he says he is. He is love. So as we talk about this idea of what scripture teaches, and we talk about this idea that God's love is the very essence of all of what scripture teaches, we just understand that even even though we may not be able to grasp it or see it, It may not feel good at times. And maybe when we're sitting there next to our dying spouse or our dying child or whomever, these answers don't always make us feel better, but we can rest in the assurance that the God who literally gave up his son, his most prized possession for us, he will demonstrate fully one day why all these things happen, how they happen, what his reasons were how he let things unfold. And we will be able to say with unequivocal confidence that God is love. And love will ultimately prevail. So we can trust him. We can give our our affections to him and know that he is good. Right now as we close, we're going to sing a song, a hymn. And...